Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. We're going to pick up our study in the Gospel of John. We have not been here for a couple of weeks because of Christmas and various different things that we were able to go through. Psalm 91 for the new year, things like that. But we're going to pick it back up. John chapter 6. We're going to dive into a very familiar story. Let's just Remember the setting, John chapter 5. We spent a couple weeks in John chapter 5 about a couple months ago. We saw this amazing miracle, Jesus back in Jerusalem at the pools of Bethesda. We saw the compassion that Jesus had on that specific man um, to heal him on the Sabbath. And because he healed him on the Sabbath, there was a controversy that um, developed. And we saw that Jesus had to defend his claim to be God. We saw six ways in which Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is equal to God in nature. He's equal to God in his works. He's equal to God in his power. He's equal to God in his authority. He's equal to God in his honor, the worth, the the glory that is due his name. And he's equal to God in truth, in the words that he says. The religious leaders did not believe that. And so Jesus said, let me bring confirmation. If I testify about myself, what good is that? So let me testify using other means. And he brought in the confirmation of several different witnesses. Really, the Father bringing the witnesses in. John the Baptist, the witness of John the Baptist and the miraculous man that he was and the ministry that he had. The confirmation of the miracles that only God can do what Jesus was doing. So Jesus had to be God. And the confirmation of the scriptures. Uh, If you pick it back up, if you're in John 6, just go a couple verses up. John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, you will not believe my words. How will you? The answer is you won't. You won't believe me. If you don't believe this book, you cannot believe Jesus. And so Jesus gives confirmation as to who he is. He says, I'm God, very God. And he leaves. Um, The next statement that we have in John chapter 6, verse 1, is after these things. That might seem chronological as far as timing is concerned to say immediately after, but it's actually a vague reference. Just after that, something else happened. Could have been actually an entire year after the events in John chapter 5. Could have been that long. It also could have been as short as four months, depending on what feast Jesus was going to in Jerusalem in John chapter 5. Because in John chapter 6, he's going to Jerusalem for the the feast of the Passover. He's actually in Galilee, but others are going to Jerusalem. And we come in John chapter 6 to a very familiar passage. Almost all believers know about the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the first flannel graphs that you learn about in Sunday school, right? Um, You have Jesus, blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, and for some reason he always has a white gown and a blue sash. That's always what Jesus has in flannel graphs. And he is, um, always has his arms like this, and there's a little boy, and he just looks like a little puppy, right? Just like, oh, I'm here for you. Has a basket, and out of the basket you pull, what, five loaves of bread, two fish, And he breaks all of the bread and the fish, and he creates a miracle. We know this story. Even non-believers are familiar with this account. It's a very famous account, rightfully so. But I want to ask the question this morning, why this account? Why now? Why here? Why specifically? This is actually, other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. 
Um, the resurrection is recorded in all, all four Gospels, and the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. Why this miracle? Why would this be the only one? I mean, the resurrection is huge. Why would this be similar to the resurrection and being in all of the four Gospels? What's important about this miracle? What I want us to do this morning is zoom in really close, study the miracle, and then pull back and see the whole account and the purpose for which John wrote it. Let's read it together. We'll just read verses 1 through 15 this morning. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone even to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here, a young boy here, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in, in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. God, I pray that you would help us in this hour. Help us to understand these verses rightly, to see why John wrote these verses, to see why Jesus performed this miracle. God, I pray that you would help us to see why the people wanted Jesus to be king and to see why Jesus did not want to be their king that way. God, I pray that we would hear this account as if we were hearing it for the first time. Familiarity breeds contempt, and our familiarity with this passage, though that's a good thing that we know this passage, we can tend to think that we know everything there is to know. So God, I pray that we would be humble, that your Spirit would instruct us this morning, and that we would see Jesus on full display. This passage is about Jesus. John wrote this book, and he wrote this chapter, and he wrote these verses so that we would see Jesus for who he is, and by seeing him as the Messiah, the Son of God, we would believe and have life in his name. So bring life to our people here today, to our church, that we would believe in Jesus and follow him all the days of our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. John chapter 6 follows the exact same pattern that John chapter 5 laid out for us. There is, first of all, a miracle 
There is second, a discourse or a large teaching on the deity of Jesus. And then thirdly, there's a rejection of Jesus. So John chapter 6, the entire chapter, the longest chapter in the New Testament. John 6 is a massive chapter. There's a lot that happens in this chapter. Jesus enters this chapter with a bunch of followers, huge masses following him. He's going to leave this chapter with 11 true followers. Something pivotal is happening. Something enormous is taking place. So there's the same pattern, a miracle, a discourse on the deity of Jesus, and a rejection of Jesus, ultimately with an intent to kill him. For our time, we're just going to look at that first aspect, the miracle. We will see the discourse on the deity of Jesus later. We'll see uh, the rejection of Jesus. But for this morning, we're just going to look at the miracle, and we're going to break it down just for an outline into the setting of the miracle the miracle itself, and the purpose of the miracle. So the setting of the miracle, the miracle itself, and the purpose of the miracle. Now, for the setting, this is verses 1 through 4. For the setting itself, we have to do a little bit of harmonizing of the Gospels. And because this is recorded in all four Gospels, we have a lot of uh, material to work with, which is really, really cool. Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6 all record the feeding of the 5,000. So, Matthew... For the setting, he informs us of the timing of this miracle. This miracle happened immediately after John the Baptist had been murdered, and that's important. John the Baptist has just been murdered. His head has just been chopped off. Matthew tells us immediately after that, Jesus will withdraw to be alone, but the crowds will still follow him. And he has compassion on the crowds, and he heals their sick. That's in Matthew. Mark tells us that this occurs, this miracle occurs, after a preaching tour that Jesus and the disciples went on. Jesus has sent out the disciples. John the Baptist is murdered. Jesus says, disciples, come back. We're going to go by ourselves and be alone. So Mark tells us that Jesus was exhausted and that he's teaching the crowds. So he wants to be alone. There are a bunch of crowds around him. So he says, I will heal and I will teach. He's teaching, he's healing. Luke tells us, like Mark, that this is after a preaching ministry of the disciples and Jesus is exhausted. And then if you include John, if you summarize the whole thing to harmonize the Gospels, this miracle is taking place on the other side, verse 1 says, John chapter 6, verse 1, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The other side is a reference to the eastern side. Um, the, the normal side is the western side where most of the Jews lived. Uh, most, mostly Greeks lived over on the other side. Gentiles lived over on the other side. You remember... The man, uh, the demon-possessed man, uh, the demons went into the pigs. That happened over on the other side. He was raising pigs because he was a Gentile. So, the other side is the eastern side. So, Jesus is on the eastern shore. It's probably the northeastern shore in Bethsaida. Immediately after the preaching tour of the disciples, Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been murdered. And due to John's execution and due to Jesus' exhaustion... Um, Jesus seeks seclusion with his disciples, but that doesn't happen. So he preaches, he teaches, he works miracles. John chapter 6 is the close of an 18-month public ministry in Galilee. We call it the Great Galilean Ministry. Jesus had been on a, on a preaching tour in Galilee for 18 months, and John chapter 6 is going to close that. It's really when John the Baptist is killed, the ministry ends. John 6 is going to open up the private preparation of the disciples. Six months 
And then Jesus is going to be killed. So John 6 is very, very pivotal. It's a huge chapter. So right after Jesus hears that John has been killed, and right after Jesus has sent out his disciples for a preaching ministry, he comes away, starts healing these masses of crowds. Verse 2, this crowd is following Jesus because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. The crowds are following Jesus because they are watching him heal all of the people and they're bringing their own sick to be healed as well. The word followed, in verse 2, my Bible says, followed, saw, and performing. Those three words, uh, some of your translations might say observing the signs, those three words are all in the imperfect in the Greek. It's a tense that means they're always happening, they're ongoing. So a large crowds are always following Jesus that he cannot get by himself. And he's always performing signs that they are always seeing. And so they're constantly amazed at what he's doing. They're seeing the signs. But immediately when we hear signs, we should be careful. Because we know John chapter 2, when people saw signs, they believed in Jesus. But Jesus didn't believe and they're believing, right? He knew that they were not true disciples. So we should be careful. And they're going to confirm that they're not true disciples in verse 14 and 15. So he's healing. Verse 3, Jesus goes up to a mountain. And he sits down with his disciples. And the Passover, verse 4, the feast of the Jews is near. Mark tells us that uh, they sit down on green grass. It's springtime. It's Passover. It's a beautiful place to hang out. I've been to this location a couple times in Israel. Why does John include Passover? We're gonna, like I said, we're going to zero in on this. We're going to talk technical details and we'll pull back and we'll see the purpose at the end. There's two reasons why I think John includes Passover. Number one, he's telling us that the crowds are large. Crowds would go around Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and they would go on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's called the Transjordanian Highway. And they'd go all the way down uh, to the Dead Sea, and then they'd cross over, they'd enter into Jericho, and then they'd go to Jerusalem for Passover. They didn't want to go through Samaria, so they would cross over. Where Jesus is in Bethsaida, that's a town that you would go through on your pilgrimage down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So there's large crowds because of the timing of this event. But number two, John is connecting what Jesus is going to say to the Passover. Jesus is going to say, I am the living bread. You need to eat of me. He's going to say that here in John 6, and then he's going to say it again in the upper room. On the Passover in the Last Supper. The nearness of the Passover provides a framework for the ensuing feeding of the multitude and Jesus' own claims to be the bread of life. It's a framework. There's a reason why John says that this is at the Passover. What's drawing these crowds? It wasn't salvation. It wasn't repentance. It wasn't sound doctrine. They're on this mountain not because of a true understanding of sin, not because of a longing for forgiveness, not because they wanted to escape judgment or escape hell. What drew them is because they saw the signs. They saw the healing. We need to be careful whenever people desire to follow Jesus because of something that Jesus has to offer them that's a temporal thing, that's a fleshly thing. Faithful evangelists have to know, faithful preachers of the gospel have to know the default position of sinners and never preach to that default position. Never 
um, appeal to fleshly desires in sinners. If you offer that, as one pastor says, you have prostituted yourself to that defective temporal desire and you are not giving them the, the true gospel. So the crowds are there and we need to be careful to figure out why they're there. We need to be on guard for the reason why they're there. Jesus is there preaching and teaching and healing. That's the setting, verses 1 through 4. The miracle itself, verses 5 through 13, the miracle itself. Let's take a look at this miracle that's so well known. Verse 5, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, why is Jesus asking this question? We know why he is not asking this question. He's not asking it because he has no idea what he's going to do. That's why John is going to include in verse 6, he is saying this to test Philip because he himself knew what he was intending to do. John wants to be careful to remind us, Jesus is not a human like we are in the exact same form. Jesus is 100% human, but he also has God's nature in him. And so he's experiencing things in a very different way, and he knows in his sovereignty exactly what he is about to do. He knows exactly what he's about to do. So he does not ask this question because he has no idea what to do in this moment. Right? We know that. So why is he asking it? I think he's asking it because of this reason. He wants to prove to Philip, to Andrew, and to the other disciples how impossible this situation is to fix. He wants to prove to them, can, can we go buy enough food for these people? Philip's going to say, we could never buy enough food for these people. And Jesus is saying, you're right. This situation can never be fixed by human effort. This situation has to be fixed. This problem has to be solved by God and God alone. That's why Jesus asked the question. He's testing Philip. He's not tempting him. We know James 1 tells us that Jesus never tempts anyone. God doesn't tempt anyone. He's testing him. He wants to see, how much faith do you truly have in me? Verse 6, he's testing him. And Philip answers, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. Philip is the accountant of the group, and he says, not even 200 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage so 200 days, we've got about eight months worth of wages. Not even eight months of your life uh, worth of wages could satisfy all of these people. Why? Because there's 5,000 men. Uh, there's the word specifically used for men. So the feeding of the 5,000 is the feeding of 5,000 men. Matthew is going to include, there are also women and children not included in the number of 5,000. So if we were to include a woman for every man, we have at least 10,000. And if we were to include two kids for every couple. Um, now we're at uh, 20,000. We're growing. We're just going to get bigger. If you keep adding more and more people, we're around 20,000 people, massive crowds. That's why Philip says, there's no way we can have enough money. Even if we had 200 denarii, we couldn't feed all of these people. It's impossible. But verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to Jesus, I found... This little boy. I found this little boy. He has five barley loaves. He has two fish. But what are these for so many people? Now, verse 9 is a very weird... Verse 8 and 9 is very weird. just seems out of the blue. Why was Andrew looking for somebody to have food? That doesn't really make sense. 
Um, We know, though, from Mark chapter 6, verse 38, again, harmonizing the Gospels together, we know that Jesus told his disciples to go into the crowd to find food. Um, So he said, do we have any money to buy food? No. Okay, then go into the crowd. See if there's food in the crowd. So Andrew's coming back saying, I found this kid who has some food. Andrew's response, Philip's response, what should their responses have been? Jesus is testing them. Their response should have been very, very simply, this is impossible for us, but nothing is impossible for you. Nothing is impossible for you. That should have been their response. It's not. But there's this little boy. Five barley loaves, verse 9, two fish. What are these for so many people? Um, I've always thought of this. Uh, whenever I go to Costco and we just stock up on bread, I've got my wheat loaf bread. Um, they're, they're decently big, so I can put two under my arm, a third between my fingers, grab the top of it. You know, So I've got three here. I've got two more here, five loaves, two fish. I'm thinking... You know, the fish and the, you know, go all the way back to Costco, all the way in the back. You got the, the fish section. You got these two fish and those little, um, you know, foamy little wrapper things. Grab the two fish, hold those, go to my line. Here's five, five loaves, two fish. Decent meal. It would feed me and other people. That's not what's happening here. Um, this, again, gets very technical, but you'll know what the point is. Uh, the word for barley loaves is not a loaf of bread, as in something big that you can take and you can give to somebody. It's actually crackers or cakes. Um, they're, they're, barley, they're pieces of barley bread that are put on a piece of stone that are baked through, so they're just little crackers. They're probably this big crackers. So you break it, uh, it, would, it would be a tiny snack. Just one of those would be a tiny snack for me. It has five of those. So it's not loaf of bread hanging on to stuff. Five crackers. And then two fish. You guys know the Greek word for fish, right? Ichthus. Um, That's used in the other three Gospels. That's not used here. This is a different Greek word that is a very specific word for a type of fish that's produced a certain way. It's a pickled fish. It's a tiny little sardine-looking pickled salted fish. So the, the idea of I've got my food here. Here, Jesus, you can do what you want with this is wrong. The idea here is I've got my food. Two little fish here and five crackers. That's what I've got. In the entire 20,000 people, that's all the food there was. Uh, Apparently, the dads were in charge of packing lunches that day um, because no one has anything. The moms are saying, honey, what's going on? I thought, and they're saying, oh, I thought we were going to be back before then. This guy preaches for a long time. I thought we were going to be home by then. The bottom line is John is using very specific. Again, I'm sorry to get technical, but he's using very specific words to tell us even the meal that the boy has is tiny. And that's why Andrew will say at the end of verse 9, what are these for so many people? What are these times? We can't do anything with this. This is useless. Verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. Have the people sit down. Um, Mark tells us, Mark 6 verse 40 tells us that Jesus told the disciples to go into the crowd and sit the crowd down in groups of 50s and groups of 100. 
create some aisles. Let's make some order. Our God is a God of order, not chaos. So let's make some order. Um, I always wonder, who's the first disciple that catches on to something's about to happen, right? When Jesus says, have the people sit down, group them in 50s and 100s, are they just going, what are we doing again? Or is there some disciple who goes, what's happening? Something's about to happen. I always wonder if it's Peter. Um, Peter just seems like this really cute little immature boy all the time. So he's the one that I like to think he's going to do something, you know, just going through the crowd. Jesus is going to do something. Here we go. He says, go into the crowd, sit him down. Fifties here, hundreds there. Here in verse 10, again, to get technical, Jesus says, have the people sit down. You know the word, um, the Greek word uh, we get anthropology from, um, that, that anthro. Anthropos, that's where we get men or people, men as in everyone, uh, mankind. Have all of the people sit down. Then it says, so, or now there was much grass in that place so they can sit down on the grass. So the men, that's a different Greek word, specifically the males sat down in number about 5,000. So again, to get technical, we have 5,000 men. Jesus says, sit all of the people down. The men sit down first. And there are others there. Matthew tells us that the 5,000 does not include everyone. It's just the men, and this verse does as well. Matthew 14, 21 is the verse that says 5,000 not including women and children. So they sit down. Something is about to happen. And true to form, the way that Jesus does miracles and the way that they're recorded John 6:11 is the most understated creation story ever. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, and likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. Done. Uh, just the same in John 2, right? Water turned to wine, boom, done. No fanfare, no wow, just this is who I am. I am God. He takes the bread, he breaks it. We, we, aren't, we aren't told how this happens. This is where we get to use some sanctified imagination. Um, the, the video that I grew up watching about Jesus' miracles, it was like this never-ending loaf of bread, so they already got it wrong because it's this big loaf. But Jesus rips it in half and gives it to somebody, and then he rips this part, and this is still the same, and he gives it to somebody, and he just keeps going back and forth and back and forth, and never-ending bread. Could have been that. We don't know how it happened, but we know that it did happen. We live in a day where people are very skeptical about this book. Liberal theology has just infused the church with skepticism over what Jesus does. So much so that they take this passage, liberal theologians take this passage and say it wasn't a miracle. What happened was everybody had their lunch pails. And Jesus said, are you guys hungry? Yes, we're hungry. Well, let's eat. And they're looking around. The crowd's looking around. And there's a handful of people in the crowd that didn't bring a lunch. And they're saying, we aren't going to share our food with those people that didn't bring a lunch. Too bad that their dads didn't bring their lunch. And so Jesus says, young boy, can you bring your meal up here? And the young boy says, yes, sir. Has an English accent because he's just this little, please, sir, I want some more. And he says, you can have my food. Jesus didn't have food, right? Where are we going to eat? Where are we going to get bread? Oh, you can have my food. And the whole crowd, you know, with one voice goes, aw, we should share with those who don't have food. It wasn't a miracle, 
It was just a lesson on sharing. That's not at all what's happening. We know that by verse 11, they are able to eat as much as they wanted. So they're not splitting a meal. One of the greatest lessons that I have learned as a parent is selflessness. And one of the greatest acts of selflessness that I give to my precious children is wherever we go to eat. Whenever we go, we we rarely go eat out, but when we go eat out, we go eat out because people have given us gift cards. So this is special time, right? Special food, special time. We order something, and my son just takes whatever the something is, special food, and just grabs it and just starts eating it. And I think in that moment, okay, I'm going to be very selfless and give this to him. He's this tiny little kid. And then my daughter says, oh, can I have some too? And my wife and I look at each other. The the meal that we were going to have together has now just departed, and we're eating their fig bars and their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. What just happened? Uh, That's not what happens when God creates a miracle. When you share food, you don't leave going, oh, that was good, I'm full. When you share food, somebody doesn't have food, you have enough, and you split it, and you all can exist for the remainder of the day, you'll be okay, but your stomach will be growling at the end of the day. Not so here. Verse 11, they eat of the loaves and they eat of the fish as much as they wanted. They're not sharing food. This isn't a lesson on sharing. If they want more, Jesus says, sure, I'll give you more. What must that have been like? Again, the, the mo- verse 11, the most understated, Jesus made bread and Jesus made fish. You realize Jesus created dead fish. Uh, the, the fish did not start from an egg to, to be fertilized, to grow, to swim, to do, its egg, to do its fishy things. Jesus created a living dead fish instantly. He creates unfallen, uncursed bread. Um, the people must be eating this going, this is amazing. I've never had bread like this. I've never had fish like this. And so they just keep saying, can I have more? Can I have more? And Jesus just, yeah, you can have more. As much as they wanted. Philip earlier had tried to figure out, how can we make this work so that everybody gets a little bit? And Jesus says, no, it's not that. Lavishly. Jesus never gives of himself sparingly. He always lavishly gives. And the beauty of this miracle is that people aren't watching it happen. They're involved in it. It's happening to them, and they get to eat of it. Verse 12, when they are all filled, filled to the brim. It's another very specific Greek word that means stuffed. They couldn't eat anymore. He says to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Again, our God is a God of order. He's not going to waste anything. He lavishly gives of himself, but he doesn't waste anything of himself. So, verse 13, they gather up the baskets, uh, they gather up the food, fill it with 12, fill 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. So, one basket per disciple. Maybe the disciples hadn't even eaten at that point. They're just passing food out to people. So, Jesus says, okay, we're done. They're filled up. Now it's your turn to enjoy and eat. That's the miracle itself. The miracle is amazing. But what happens? Verse 14 and 15. This powerful miracle and this incredibly precise miracle, it's not just a haphazard, I'll make food for everyone and we'll see how much we made and we got left over and, oh, there's 13 baskets. No, Jesus powerfully made 
food and precisely made it so that the exact amount of food was left over for his disciples. Therefore, because of that, verse 14, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Prophet, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is where they get this idea of the prophet. My Bible has it capitalized P, the prophet. God had promised that there would be a prophet like Moses who is going to come. And they believe that that prophet is the Messiah. And they say, you are the Messiah. You are the prophet. Jesus is presenting himself in this passage as kind of the anti-type to Moses. Moses foreshadowed Jesus in that Moses was used by God to provide bread, provide manna for the people. The difference here is Jesus isn't being used by God to provide bread. This miracle is proving, and Jesus is going to say, I am the bread for you. It's not what I give you that you need to be satisfied by. It's me. Come to me. So they say this is the prophet. They're saying this is the Messiah. But verse 15, Jesus leaves them. Perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. This is, this is weird. Um, Jesus wants a crowd. He wants a, a following. He wants to gather people to himself that would follow him. He did a miracle, and they're saying, you are the Messiah. You are the prophet. God sent you. And Jesus says, I don't want you to follow me. I don't want to be who you think I am. You're incorrect in your thinking. It seems like Jesus has failed. He hasn't. And again, even to the end of this chapter, he's just going to say things that are harsh, that are hard saying, so much so that everybody leaves. That's where the song that we sang comes from. Where else should we go, Lord? Do you have the words of eternal life? Everyone's leaving, and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, do you guys want to leave too? And they say, your words are hard, but they're words of eternal life. We will follow you. So this is going to set us up for what Jesus is going to say in his long discourse that he is the bread of life. But we can't get it all this morning. So let's talk about the purpose of what we've seen thus far. Just what we've seen thus far. We can see clearly in verse 15 that Jesus does not acquiesce to whims to fancies. Oh, he's awesome. I want to follow him. No, no, no. You're wanting to follow me for the wrong reasons. He comes to no man on that man's terms. One author says, people cannot manipulate Jesus for their own selfish ends. He doesn't promise unregenerate people what unregenerate people want. Jesus will not be a quick fix for felt needs. He will not be the one who just gives you temporal satisfaction. And if you ever market him that way, then you're on your own because he's not with you in your message. People cannot come to Christ for what they want. They come to Christ for what he demands. He calls on sinners to mourn for their sin, to be broken, to be penitent, to acknowledge him as sovereign Lord, to be obedient to him, to live for him, to even die for him, to serve him as a slave and to suffer for him and be persecuted for him. And when he gives that message at the end of this chapter, the crowds will leave. The crowds will leave. So let's pull back. What's the purpose of all of this? Let's pull back. Number one, the timing of this whole account that it's immediately after John the Baptist's death, and it's during Passover. It's very important. 
Why? Why does Jesus mourn the death of John the Baptist and immediately want to go into seclusion? There's a number of reasons why he does that, but I think one of those reasons, experientially for Jesus, is he knows that John the Baptist was hated by many people and was killed because he followed God's will. And immediately when John is murdered, Jesus begins explicitly talking about his death. I think that John the Baptist's death reminds Jesus. He never forgot it, but it reminds Jesus yet again. Your time is coming, and John was hated by some people. Jesus is going to be hated by much more people. John was executed in not a nice way. Jesus is going to be executed in an even worse way and bear the wrath of God on the cross. I think the timing with John the Baptist's death brings Jesus to a place where he's going to do a miracle that will help us see something about his death. His death is in mind in this miracle. Secondly, the Passover. When it's the Passover here, again, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the last Passover. Jesus is going to say, take this and eat, it is my body. He's going to say that twice in his earthly ministry. We know the well-known saying when he says that in the upper room, but he's also going to say it here. Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part in the kingdom of God. He's going to say that in John 6. This is the first time he says it. And so he's going to do a miracle with bread, and the people are going to say, well, we want bread. He's going to say, I am bread, and you must eat me. I am the bread that will be broken for you. But through it all, the masses are going to fall away. Why? Why will they fall away when he just did an amazing miracle? Why will they fall away when he says, I've come to satisfy you? Why is it? Just three points in conclusion, okay? Three three points. Number one, be careful how you follow Jesus. This is what we can learn from the response of these followers. Be careful how you follow Jesus. In verses one and two, the people are following Jesus because he is a sign doer. They saw the sign, they respond in verse 15 or in verse, verse 14 by saying, we see the sign, he's the prophet, we're going to follow him. And Jesus withdraws. Why? Because the enthusiasm that the people had is not for who Jesus truly is. It is very possible for followers of Jesus to get excited about a Jesus who is not the real Jesus. It's very possible for followers of Jesus to get excited about a Jesus who isn't the real Jesus. That's exactly what's happening here in John 6. That's what's happening in every false religion that claims to follow Jesus. I just spoke with three Mormons who came to my house this last week. They said, we believe in the same Jesus. And I had took my Bible and I showed them biblically, my Jesus says that there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. Your Jesus says You must be baptized. You must have a Mormon priest pray over you. You must do all these different things. That's what your Jesus says. My Jesus says, if you add anything to the work that Jesus himself has done, that work is null and void and is impossible to get you to heaven. It's very possible to follow a Jesus and get excited about a Jesus who isn't the true Jesus. So be careful how you follow him. Be careful why you follow him. Why are you following Jesus? Why are you following him? They were following him 
because they were excited that their promised Messiah could produce bread. Never again would they go hungry if, if he was king. And when he says, that's not why I came, they go, well, then we don't want you. So be careful how you follow Jesus. Number two, be careful how you receive Jesus. Be careful how you follow him. Be careful how you receive Jesus. Jesus is going to say later in this passage, I am not here to give you things that will satisfy you. I am here to satisfy you myself. It's about me. The bread that you enjoyed was a picture to point you to me. Bread satisfies temporally. I, I, I firmly believe that God created bread so that we will be satisfied temporally and then get hungry again. So that when he says, I am the living bread, we know a picture. Okay, I can eat bread. I can be hungry, eat bread, be satisfied, but it never fully satisfies me. And Jesus says, I'm bread that fully satisfies. I'm bread that if you eat of me, you will never go hungry again. Same thing with water. I think God created water. One of the reasons why God designed water and Powerade and Gatorade is so that when we thirst... We drink and we stop being thirsty. But there's going to come a day or a minute or an hour later that you're going to get thirsty again. God designed water to point us to the fact that if we are spiritually thirsty and we go to Jesus, he is the fountain of living water that if we drink once, we will never thirst again. They're all pictures. And so the disciples or or the followers of Jesus, the masses, are terminating on the picture They're saying, I don't want to be satisfied by you. I want to be satisfied by the things that you have to offer, your bread. They're not receiving Jesus for who he is. They're saying, I just want your stuff. This is like Christmas in my household. The Christmas for any young parents with kids. You give them something. Oh, we were so excited to give our kids their toys. So excited. They unwrap them. And the toy that we're so excited about them playing with, that we think they're going to love. Unwrap it, toy. Yes, wrapping paper, cardboard box, um, trash, right? A little ribbon. I want a ribbon. I gave you something here, and you're terminating on something else other than what, I'm supposed to, what you're supposed to be looking at and enjoying. You're enjoying something else. That's why we don't spend a lot on our kids right now, because we know, just have a box. You'll love it. What's in the trash? Wrap it up. Um, the reality is this picture is even worse than that. This picture in Scripture is if we were to give our kids a gift and they were to say, I want the gift and I hate you and I don't want you, mom and dad. That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying the gifts are supposed to point you back to me as the all-satisfying giver and you're terminating on the gift saying, I don't want you, I want your stuff. They are seeing full bellies. They're seeing defeating the Romans. They're seeing establishing a welfare system where, is somebody hungry? Just go to the king and he'll make you bread. That's all they're seeing. They're not seeing three specific aspects of what Jesus is going to say. Number one, Jesus is going to say that the bread that I'm giving to you is representative of my flesh. I am giving my flesh to die for sins. They don't see that. They don't care about that. They just see a loaf of bread. Jesus himself is their satisfaction. They're not seeing that. They're seeing that his gifts are satisfying, not himself. And they don't see the connection between the two. The way that Jesus becomes food for our souls is through his death. They're they're missing that. And we're going to get into all this in a couple weeks. But the reality is, how do you receive Jesus? Be careful how you receive him. What is your bread? 
What is bread to you? What is the thing that satisfies you in this life that maybe you even receive Jesus as Lord and Savior to get that instead of to get Jesus? You're saying, okay, uh, Jesus offers me friends. Jesus offers me a community. And we have an amazing church family here. But if you go to church and follow Jesus just because Jesus offers you a support group around you, you can just pay money, go to the gym, and you've got a support group around you at the gym. You, you are going to, you're receiving Jesus for what he has to offer that a normal, unregenerate person would enjoy. What is your bread? Jesus has not come to give us bread, but to be bread for us. He has come to give us satisfaction eternal. Just as he tested Philip, he's testing us. He's forcing us to make a choice. Will you choose Jesus himself with nothing else and be satisfied by him? Number three, not only be careful how you follow, not only be careful how you receive, but finally, number three, be careful how you see Jesus. Be careful how you see Jesus. They want to make him king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. But he's not king the way that you and I think he's king. Remember Pontius Pilate, are you a king? Jesus says, I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. I'm a king, but not in the way that you think I am. Is he the king of the Jews? Absolutely, but not in the way that they think he is. Be careful how you see Jesus. The people ate their fill, and they see Jesus, and they say, he's a means to an end. He's useful to me. I'm going to use him. Unregenerate people see Jesus that way. True believers see Jesus as the end. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. He is everything that you desire. He is everything. He is your life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. You've been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer you who live, Christ who lives in you. Be careful how you see Jesus. If, you're, if you can follow Jesus with no appetites in your heart changing, then you're following the wrong Jesus, or you're following Jesus for the wrong reasons. These people wanted to follow Jesus with no new affections, no new heart, all of their old fleshly affections. This is the prosperity gospel. No new birth. John 3 tells us we need to be transformed, and in the new birth we're given new desires, new affections, a new life, and now Jesus is not a means to get something. He's not our butler where he's serving us. I want something from you. Give it to me. He is our master, and he is everything to us. Jonathan Edwards described a nominal Christian, just a Christian by name, not true Christian, as one who finds Jesus useful to get things that an unregenerate heart wants. A true Christian is one who finds, Jonathan Edwards says, one who finds Christ beautiful for who he is in himself. So that's the question this morning. Is Jesus beautiful to you by himself? Is he useful to you? Why, how do you see Jesus? Why do you follow him? How do you follow him? How do you receive him? And how do you see him? Is he king because in your mind he has given you license to be able to sin with no consequences? If so, he's just useful to you. And Romans 6 says you're living out something that you should never do. May it never be that you trample on grace by saying, oh, I get to follow Jesus and I get to sin without a care in the world. No. Jesus has just become useful to you, and he is your butler serving you, and you'll follow him until you realize that's not what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's promised. How do we find Jesus beautiful? This is the, this is the question. 
How do you see Jesus as bread that satisfies your soul? How do you see Jesus as more lovely than anything this world has to offer? We say that a lot here at CBC. How do you make that happen? How do you make that happen for your soul? How do you make that happen for others' souls? Number one, look to the holiness of God. You need to stare at the holiness of God. I was talking in my class, my Bible class, about Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Be angry, but don't sin. We're talking about righteous anger. A student asked me, um, what do I do if I don't get righteously angry at injustice in the world, at evil in the world? I was talking about abortion, and I was talking about the Holocaust. And I was saying, if you could just turn a blind eye to that and say, eh, no big deal. It's totally fine. Something's deeply wrong in you. And so they asked, well, what are you supposed to do if you don't really feel the evil in the world? You don't feel, oh, this is evil. I said, you, you don't understand the holiness of God. You need to stare at the holiness of God. You need to see God as perfectly sinless. Any thought that is a sinful thought, not even an action, just a sinful thought, a sinful glance, a, a sinful expression in your face. My daughter does that a lot now where she just will look at you and scowl like, don't, don't tell me to do that. Just a sinful expression and God has all authority and all right to crush you right then and there because you are unholy. God is holy. Even the beings in heaven, seraphim, angels, cherubim, even the angels in heaven who are completely sinless can't even look at God because he is not just sinless, he's completely set apart. You need to develop an awe and a fear as you stare at God and his holiness. And as you do that, number two, you're going to see your sinfulness. And you need to stare at your sinfulness. And you need to let yourself understand how depraved and wicked you are. The world nowadays just says, you're not as bad as you think you are. No, no, you're worse than you think you are. And you need to stay, to stay there for at least a moment to realize, before God, I am an unworthy, condemned sinner. I really believe in my own life the time that Jesus became precious to me as more beautiful than anything this world has to offer is when I realized I'm way more sinful than I thought I was. When that happens, you realize I need Jesus. And that's number three. If God is holy for who he is and you stand in awe and fear and you cannot get to him and you and your sinfulness are way more unworthy, way more wicked, way more evil than you think you are, then Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I'll die for you simply because I love you, not because you're worthy, not because you're good, not because you can do anything to earn this. I will die for you just because I love you. Pure grace. If you understand God's holiness and your sinfulness, you will say, why? Why will you die for me? I've done nothing to deserve it. I've done nothing to earn it. Why do you care about me? Why do you even think about me? Why don't you just let me go to hell? And Jesus says, because I love you. I love you. That's when Jesus becomes precious to you. That's why we stare at the cross. That's why we stare at the gospel. That's why we rehearse this constantly. Because Jesus, sin is when Jesus becomes anything but the most precious thing in our lives. So stare at God's amazing love for you. Stare at Jesus because he loves you. And if you do that rightly, Jesus will be more precious than anything this world has to offer. God, I thank you so much that you lavishly pour out satisfaction from who you are, unsparingly, unceasingly. God, thank you that through Jesus there is more than enough to, to eat our fill 
to be able to drink from the fountain of living water, to be able to eat the living bread that satisfies so that we will never go hungry again. Thank you that Jesus, in his perfect sacrifice, lavished his love upon us and his grace upon us. He became the living bread for us because he died. He became our perfect satisfaction because he was broken. And even on the cross, there was nothing, just like this miracle, there was nothing that went to waste. Every drop of blood was applied perfectly to secure salvation for all who would believe. What a beautiful picture this miracle is of the satisfaction that we have because of Jesus and because of his cross. God, I pray that you would help our church to not see Jesus as useful and come to him because we get to use him as a means to an end, but that we would see Jesus as the end. God, that's what heaven is. We finally get to be with the end, with our end, with our treasure. God, we sin every day by saying that he is not our treasure. We cherish other things other than him. So God, I pray that you would confirm in our hearts those who are saved They would not doubt their salvation because they struggle with idols and other lesser gods, but they would fight all the more to see Jesus as truly their treasure. And God, for those that are not saved in this room, God, I pray that you would bring salvation in such a way that they would see they're following you, but not the true you. They're following you, but not for the reasons that you've demanded. And that they would rehearse the gospel and see you clearly for who you are. God, thank you for our time this morning. I pray that as we go from here, we would fellowship around the gospel, because of the gospel, in the gospel, all for the glory of Jesus. And may we drink deeply and be satisfied deeply by him. The remainder of this day, the remainder of this week, bring us back safely next week to learn yet again how amazing you are. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Let's stand together and just sing the doxology.